Okay. My name is Stephen Kick, and I'm the CEO of Nightdive Studios. And we specialize in remastering lost classic games that you can no longer play on modern computers and consoles and other platforms. I'm Larry Cooperman. I'm the director of business development for Nightdive Studios. Larry, so tell us about how how you got into this company. Um, I uh, my career in games. I've, I've been in the games industry for uh, 22 years now. Um, started off working at Stardock. Um, had a uh, a brief time over at uh, at GameStop as their uh, as their head of uh, digital publishing um, during during uh, the the period between 2011 and 2013. And then um, after leaving GameStop. I really wanted to get back into a company that was creative, and uh, I knew Night Dive Studios' reputation, and reached out, contacted Steve Kick, and ten years later, here we are. So, tell us a little bit about this concept of uh, of remasters, because um, if you look even at the launch lineups of certain consoles, you see. <laughs> basically remasters as one of the launch titles, right? Yeah. And it seems like there's this huge interest in nostalgia, you know, in the older games. And so why is this happening? And what do you feel like the current generation of games just does not satisfy the consumer? Or do you feel like, you know, there's just the consumer, it's a little bit grown up and they want to relieve those experiences that they had, you know, years ago? Well, I think it's a combination of like all those things. There are a lot of people that are my age that grew up playing these games that find it familiar and nostalgic and want to relive it, but with you know next gen graphics on their PS fives or their Xbox ones or or whatever. And uh, on the business side of things, I think it's just a much easier business decision to do something that's known to have sold well as opposed to putting a lot of risk in an unknown IP, uh, which typically will take a lot more uh, money to familiarize your audience with. So it's it's an easy choice. So when we think about um, demand for these kind of uh, titles, can you talk a little bit about who's buying those games, uh, how much are they willing to pay, uh, what's <laughs> like, what are they getting out of it? Because it's like... A, I mean, you can go and GOG and probably download the, the older uh, System Shock and just play with that. Like, how, where do well, they in fact, in fact, we published that, so yeah. yes, you absolutely, absolutely can do that. Um, I, I think that I think that there are are multiple portions of the demographic that that we serve. Um, Steve, who who you interviewed before, um, played a lot of these games with with his father. Um, that was part of his his kind of coming of age, and this was something that that he and his dad did together. Well. I had the uh, the other side of that experience. I was playing some of these games with my son, um, who's 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 a grown man now, um, and you know games like like Turok. Um, we played on on PC, you know, originally when it when it came out. Um, so that was a, a shared experience that we had um, very early on, before my son was uh, was even in his teenage years. We were uh, we were hooking up um, two computers. Um, you know, pre-internet, so that we could play a land game of uh, of Doom 
Um, you would not have been able to tell me all those years ago that um, that 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 I'd be working for a company that would bring back Doom sixty four. Um, so that was kind of cool. Um, so we have a we have a young uh, a, what I would consider a young demographic, um, probably probably mature demographic of people that remember playing those games from their childhood. Um, we have an older demographic that played those games in, in many cases, either as individuals or with their children. And then we have another demographic um, that's that's really uh, positive for us, which is which is really young people who never got a chance to play the games in the first case. Um, it's amazing how much uh, I see on on forums. I see posts from people that begin with saying, "Well, I've heard all about System Shock, but I never had a chance to play it before, so I'm really looking forward to this." Can you tell us a little bit about what do BD? do for these kind of like product oriented uh, because you had this experience at GameSpot and this is more like a platform like a service thing yeah. and this is like a different beast a- absolutely so um, my, my job duties are I, uh, I talk about being outward facing I work with a lot of our, our partners um, so I, I manage those partner relationships um, but because we're also a small company I am very much hands on um, with the development of our Kex engine games Um, some of which are, are pretty well known. Uh, we've done development work for companies like Bethesda, um, Doom 64, and Quake. And we've also partnered with companies like uh, NBC Universal, for whom we do the Turok series of games. So I manage those relationships, but I also will communicate back to our development teams and make sure that um, what we're doing um, aligns with what our, our partners' interests are at the same time. So what are the... Um When you talk about partners, what partners do you actually need if you want to ship a game today that is not online, that is not multiplayer, it's kind of like old school and has this big franchise behind it, but it's kind of like, you know, not a fresh thing? Well, so first of all, um, first of all, you really need to have great relationships with um, our distribu- distribution partners. Um, for us... Uh, That would include companies. Our, our oldest partner is GOG.com, GOG.com. Um, they're certainly where, where the company started off, and we still work with them very closely. Steam, of course, Epic, um, but also Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo. Um, those, are, those are our major partners on the distribution side. Um, and then uh, other, than, other than what are referred to as clients, Um, we have also had uh, a great relationship working with the team at, at Epic, the Unreal team over there. And uh, let me just uh, say that um, when we've had technical questions, when we've needed support for the Unreal Engine for a game like System Shop, um, Epic has always been a, a really good partner for us to work with. So uh, talking <laughs> about this, um, basically what stands behind this franchise, uh, when we talk with big companies, they're saying... Basically, having a fun project is kind of like a key to hiring great people. Mm-hmm. Basically, if you have a, you know, if you're working on God of War, it's much easier to hire great senior talent than if you're doing something, you know, completely original. And uh, studios in California, they do leverage that, like the, you know, to the fullest. Uh, what about you? Like you're you're having this incredible franchise that has been around for years, and there's like this incredible. Um, you know, fan base. How do you approach it? Does it help you hire new talent? Do you, do you hunt for new guys at all? Like, how does that work? 
That's a really great question because, um, as you may know, Night Dive Studios has always been a remote studio, and we've been that way for 10 years. And when you talk to a AAA and they say, oh, we've, we hire the best, it's not necessarily true. They can hire the best within the people that live within that studio. Whereas we can truly go all over the world and hire the best people because there's no requirement for them to, to you know, pull up their roots and move. So that's a really big factor in, in how System Shock has turned out the way it is, is. We have literally hired the best people, the most passionate people who love the game more than anyone else. And um, it's, you know, the benefit of working with an IP like that is they've come to us in most cases. Um, or we've been able to um, hire via word of mouth. You know, if we hire an artist and they recommend somebody else, chances are they're going to be really good. So it's taken a lot of the stress out for us having to find and, and locate people. When you think about uh, platforms and companies like Sony and, uh, and, and uh, many others, um, are they more like, um, you know, there's this idea of like four competitive uh, forces that influence you. And, and it, the idea is that the consumer is basically your competitor. Suppliers, basically, your competitor. Everybody's trying to uh, come and kill you. Like, when you work with platforms, do they help more? Uh, especially, like, in these environments right now. Like, when you talk with Sony, do they give you, like, a feature? Why is it important to have this relationship well, so, with them? So, first of all, you know, you're, you're working in terms of, of development, right? You, you may need to reach out to Sony for questions on on how to how to uh, optimize a particular game for PlayStation you might have a problem that you need to reach out to them help them help get their help to resolve the technical side then the the other side of it is once the game is complete you're going to be working with that same partner different people within that organization but you're going to be working with that same partner on distribution and and marketing side of it so it's a it's a funny relationship you're working with them Before the game is made, during the, the, the period where the game is, is in creation, and then working with a completely different group of people, but at the same organization, once the game is complete and you're getting it out to the public. So it's a, it's a complicated relationship, which is why there's always a room for people like me that can navigate that. What are the things that the platforms can do to help you basically push more copies? Like, how do you work with them in order to... And also, like, maybe as an advice to other devs... We're trying to do it. Like, what can you do to make it more successful? Well, that, that's also a great question. Um, I will tell you one of uh, one of the shining moments uh, in, in in Night Dive's past um, was when we we first our first console launches, um, which was uh, Turok and Turok 2, launched on the Xbox platform. Um, Microsoft was was keenly aware that we were a small studio that we were first first working on that. Um, we had we had great relationships. We have uh, a dedicated partner manager over there, Glenn Gregory, and Glenn was was really instrumental in getting those games streamed the day that they released on Xbox um, onto both the the Xbox site. They have multiple sites, and and so they they really covered that. And we saw a tremendous lift um, in in uh, both awareness and um, and in sales. Um, from the, as a as a result of the partnership work that that uh, Microsoft did with us, we've done similar things with um, PlayStation. Um, we're very active in participating in PlayStation sponsored sales, and uh, and from uh, Nintendo. Nintendo has been an absolutely great partner for us to work with. Um, 
the reception uh, for our bringing some of the old N64 titles back and, and, and putting them on Switch has been absolutely great. Um, I, I have been remiss in, in one partner that I, I didn't mention, and I, I probably should have. Um, there's still a, a huge appetite for a collector's edition and retail boxes of, of our games, and, uh, and we work pretty closely with the team over at Limited Run Games. Um, that's also been a great partnership for us. Let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> the kind of the business side of it. Like, how do you, if you are distributing the game, if you're kind of going to market, do you work with a publisher? Do you prefer to work alone? What is like the, what are the trade-offs here and there? Uh, typically, all of our other games have been self-published. Uh, but with System Shock Remake, we're working with PlayOn. Um, they're our first publisher kind of in this space, and, and we really needed their expertise to help us navigate, you know, some of the intricacies that we haven't experienced before, like localizing the game in 14 different languages is something that we haven't had experience with, that they were tremendously helpful with. Um, also, um, a, a big marketing push so that more people knew what was going on, that we were even making the game was very essential to us, and, and they've been amazing in providing those services. Um, and then just, uh, you know, quality of life stuff, like providing, um, exceptional QA teams to help us track down bugs and, uh, ensure that the end user experience is as smooth as possible. We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomized genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. Then that owl has to be an action adventure. Yes. Ooh, dear. Yes. And sometimes it doesn't quite work. And you have, you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative. A construction off. The <laughs> way the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely. Entirely. Check out the Gaming Blender on all your favorite podcast platforms now. Do you feel like it's worth it like having the publisher because there's the rupture involved and it's not like <laughs> they're working for free, right? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a trade-off. I mean, we're going to be publishing and, and shipping a, a much better game than, um, than without them. And uh, I mean, it, there is a cost associated with that, but we felt like it was a fair, a fair trade. Yeah. All right. Cool. So when we talk about these IPs, there is this, um, there are like, when I talk with guys who are doing business like uh, BD or people who are, um, they're saying that basically acquiring an IP is not that, you know, it's not that big of an investment. Right? Sometimes it can be like 50,000 bucks or something and you, mm -hmm. you got like yourself a, like a He-Man license or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, if the IP is not really hot, if there's like no TV show around it, if there's like no, you know, animation series and Netflix is not interested, then it's easier yeah. kind of like to do this deal. Can you talk a little bit about this? you know, market for these IPs? Because this is a very interesting, I'm sure there's a lot of companies who want to, you know, dip their toes, figure out how it works. Um, give us a little bit of a background. Like, how does that, how do you do it? Well, we would typically start looking for games that we played when we were kids that we wanted to enjoy again or we wanted to reintroduce to a, a new generation. And so a lot of those IPs are things that hadn't been touched for quite some time. 
and the price tag on them kind of reflected that. And so it was a lot easier for us to go in and, and say, hey, this is something that a lot of people used to love, and there's a lot of fandom still surrounding it, but you haven't done anything with it for a while. So if you entrust us with us, we can not only add value to it, uh, but we can um, we can bring it back so that the, the community can kind of rally around it again, and, and we can rebuild that, that what do you fan think, base. What, what do you think this happens like when you have these... Um, you have this IP like System Shock, which is like if you mm -hmm. go on any list anywhere in Immersive Sims, there are going to be System Shock is either number one or number two. It's like yeah. a, there's no way around it. And at the same time, people are, you know, not doing anything about it or they're trying to, you know, reinvent the, the wheel uh, a lot of times. And uh, a lot of times they fail because sometimes there's like there's some kind of magic there that it's not, you know, repeatable. Right. Yeah, Why is this happening? That's a really good question, too, because I would owe a lot of what made System Shock great, obviously, to the developers. But Looking Glass was really special because pretty much everybody that made up that DNA came from somewhere other than games. I mean, in the early 90s, it was hard to find somebody who was well-versed or well-experienced in making games. And so a lot of their talent came from people in like the pharmaceutical industry or... Um, from higher education specifically. You had a lot of people on their team with PhDs in physics, that type of thing. And when they got together to make a game, they came away with lightning in a bottle and something that, I mean, to my opinion anyways, has never really been replicated. You've, funny you should mention that. I didn't actually know that there were like a, a bunch of guys from different industries. So sort of like which is saying basically the versatility of the genre that they basically invented, right? It mm -hmm. comes from kind of the mindset of people who were doing it. And uh, they, were, they were not really thinking outside the box. They were thinking like in normal, you know, terms as a human being should be thinking, not kind of restricted by the rules that, uh, you know, virtual world is kind of pushing on you. Yeah. And they were trying to recreate basically reality in this uh, entertainment uh, package. Yeah, and you just don't see that much anymore because a lot of the people that are making games now are, are people like me. We grew up playing them, and so a lot of our experience and our inspiration comes from games that have already been made as opposed to outside influences like what, you know, the secret sauce would have been at, at Looking Glass. Um, so one, of the, one of the things that we really found interesting about bringing on one of the original developers, Rob Waters, who was the, the artist back then, was that he spent his whole career working in games, but he doesn't really play them. And he doesn't really digest the same media that everybody else does. And so his artistic vision is, I guess for the lack of a better term, it's very pure. And so we have something that's very unique at the same time. And I think when you play the System Shock remake, it really shines through. So let's talk about uh, System Shock in particular, because this is one of the big titles that you're working on right now. Um, there are two aspects when I think about remake and remaster, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I think this is in the in those words, right? So you think about remasters, basically like a like a facelift, like the better graphics. You know, it supports modern systems. When we're talking about remake, there are some some improvements, I guess, to it. Like, and so, so where do you kind of stand 
there like do you feel like those games that are older do you need really to go into the systems do you need to go into like interfaces and some other bits and pieces to kind of make them you know make the necessary quality of life improvements to make them kind of more attractive to a current user or do you feel like you just need to you know run it through you know a couple of very good artists they remake the textures and it's good to go i think it really depends on the game um a lot of us have played games in the past where you know the first time we played them it was it was wonderful it was state-of-the-art but we go back and we revisit it now and yeah it might it's a little buggy it's a little janky it doesn't play as smoothly as we all remember it uh we run into frustrating game design issues and I think that one of the things that we do specifically when we revisit these remasters is we go back and we evaluate all that and we make those changes just to smooth out the presentation and to take those bumps and those warts off so that you're left with something that feels more modern and smooth and, and probably more closer to how you remember it being than it actually being. And uh, you know, with a, with a complete remake, we're starting from, from ground zero essentially and we're rebuilding a game from scratch. And so that leaves us with a lot more room to change and alter things while also hopefully keeping with the spirit of the original. You know what, when I think about System Shock in particular, my experience is um, <clears throat> kind of those drawbacks when you look at it now, and you, you, it's kind of like an old game and it's, you know, I don't, wouldn't say buggy, but it's, it, it has a certain level of how how you play it, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's janky. Yeah. Um, when I look at it now, I feel like th this was part of the experience. Basically, like this horror of you're like being compressed in this uh, mm -hmm. space and you're, you're, I was literally afraid to open the door and, <laughs> and proceed the sound as well. It's just kind of pushes like on your psyche and you're just sitting there mm -hmm. afraid to move. Do you feel like you can replicate that? And maybe you probably do. Like, how do you replicate this? And and when you're doing the the remake, well, we want it to all be as close to the original as possible, but while giving the player, you know, new things to experience and replicating again that that atmosphere of horror and that tension was really important to us. And so we felt that the the combination of the level design. Uh, the lighting and the sound was was more important than restricting the player's ability to kind of move and interact with the environment. And that's one of the biggest things that people talk about in their inability to kind of enjoy the original is that it's just hard to navigate. And that was by design originally, but it was also during a time where all the developers were just trying to figure out the best way to allow the player to interact with their worlds. And so no one... Um, kind of standard had been uh, decided upon yet and now with the you know 30 years of experience behind us we're all familiar like you know the analog sticks are going to make you look up and down and and move and you know if you deviate from that it's going to upset people and so there's a standard that we've applied with the remake um, that will enable people to still play essentially what's the original game um, but just with more freedom. Uh, but hopefully we've maintained that, that crushing, oppressive kind of feeling of being alone on a space station full of dead people and monsters. Thanks for enjoying another episode of the 80 Level Roundtable podcast. Check out upcoming episodes on the 80 Level website at 80.lv. 
join our career site at 80.lv RFP and share our podcast with friends and on your social networks.